This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 118 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Lisa Odenweller, the founder and CEO of Chroma Wellness. Chroma Wellness is a premium functional health and superfood company on a mission to simplify nutritional well-being. With nutrient-rich, delicious products and effortless programs such as the one- and five-day resets, Chroma helps you form healthier habits, generating real results from the inside out. In this episode, Lisa shares with us her journey from growing up in Colorado with divorced parents where she learned how to be independent starting at a very young age, to working at Nestle right out of college, to working in the software industry, to starting an interior design business, which led to some soul searching and discovering her true passion for health and wellness. We talk about her struggle to allow others to support and show up for her, overcoming negative self-talk, how getting burned from choosing the wrong partners turned out to actually be the best gift of her life, and how she raised over $5.5 million from investors like Gwyneth Paltrow, Jessica Seinfeld, and Amy Schumer. Thanks so much for tuning into the show today. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, follow us on Spotify, or leave us an awesome review. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. How are you doing? I am doing greatly. I'm so happy to be here and I'm excited for the conversation. Me too. I'm excited to hear your story in building Chroma Wellness. Yeah. Where do we get started? Let's see. Where are you from originally? Are you from California? I'm not, although I feel like I am now. I'm actually from Colorado. I've been here so long, but I still feel like I still call myself like the Colorado girl, but uh, I grew up in Colorado Springs, was born at the Air Force Academy with father, stepfather, and a grandfather who all went to the Air Force. So I have a little bit of a military brat. Yeah. Were you thinking about going into the Air Force at any time? Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Nor are any of my children. (laughs) And so what was it like growing up? Um, So I grew up in a you know, it was gosh, I mean, seventies, right. And my, so I'm exposing my age, but my parents were divorced when I was one. So I don't really remember that, but my parents all worked. My mom got remarried um, very quickly after to a great man. Um, My father was a big developer. And so actually I, I think a lot of my entrepreneurial side came from being in the car with him, listening to him on calls, which that was the time when there was like the big phone. I don't, it was like, wait. yes, I remember my dad had one of those only right. for emergencies, but it was like this brick in the, brick. literally a brick of a phone in the back seat. 
And it's so funny. I mean, we just like to think about where we are now. And that was like, you are like really amazing. Like you were like, like really important if you had a, a phone in your car. So I, you know, I used to listen to him on calls and negotiating and, and what he did. And, and, you know, he listened to t- like Zig Ziglar and Tony Robbins and all these tapes that I, of course I hated at the time, but I think I just sort of through osmosis sort of adopted some of these entrepreneurial skills and, you know, probably negotiating skills, just listening to him, which was really high value, but also growing up in a split family was always challenging and dealt with a lot of sort of the back and forth between two families and just different ways of being that were hard as a young girl and parents had all worked. So I grew up in the era where there was no parents when you got home. Did you have siblings? I have a half brother. Yep. And, you know, he and I would come home after school and, you know, we were in first grade and no one was home. So I know we wouldn't can't imagine doing that now. And as a mother, I was, I can't imagine it. But at the time that was normal. You made your breakfast in the morning, you made your lunch, you went to school, you walked to school. I can't say that it was like in snow, no shoes, but, you know, uphill both ways as, you know, we joke about, but it definitely was a good mile walk to school and, you know, while mile walk home. And I think with that and growing up in sort of the, you come home and you have to fend for yourself. I had to figure out how to entertain myself. I had to, and so you would do anything. I'd play, I would jump rope. I would play tennis against the garage. I'd play soccer by myself in the backyard. You'd try to go find friends maybe I'd write a story. You you just, you didn't have the access and we certainly didn't have phones and video games like we do now, maybe Atari. So, you know, it was a very, I think that was part of what taught me so much of my independence and I, and, and so many other things too, I think that really play a role into who I've become as in growing up in that dynamic, which was really learning, you know, how to take care of yourself. My father had five wives. And so I very quickly learned that, you know, at least what was ingrained in me at the time was you can, the only person you can count on is you. And that really, I think, became a big part of my drive. That's so true. The only person we can really count on is ourselves. So we really do have to take care of ourselves. Well, that's a really good lesson to learn super early. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't learn that for a very long time. <laughs> no, that's true. And then there's some unhealthy parts of that too, because then you don't, I had to unwind it a little bit to learn how to let people show up for me. And so there was two sides of it. One is it absolutely gave me the drive and, you know, I'm going to take care of me and, you know, I'll be fine on, my own. fine on my own. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, is great in some ways, but then as an entrepreneur, it's so important. I mean, I guess in, as a, as a mother, as an entrepreneur, as anything, as a friend, as a partner, you know, yeah. as a partner, we have to also allow people to show up for us. And I had to learn that. This is very true. Letting go of some of the reins, trusting other people that they are capable, <laughs> but not everybody is disappointing. <laughs> exactly. Because you end up manifesting that. If you really believe that, then you will attract people who don't show up for you. And that's what my first marriage looked like. Interesting. Yeah. And so that, that translates. Um, there's a lot that if, you know, that childhood stuff really then flows into how we show up in our marriages and our partnerships and our friendships and certainly in business. And we don't necessarily always correlate the two, but. And so what do you mean by that? It translates to your first marriage. You were saying that your independence and like move over, I've got this, I don't need you type of thing translated to an unsuccessful marriage. It sounds like. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics that go into an unsuccessful marriage and it takes two, but I mean, I had a story that someone couldn't show up for me. So, you know, for me, 
I don't think my husband at the time, and he's a great guy. I mean, he, he, I didn't even give him a chance to show up for me. And ultimately people will just give up. Right. And I don't, it wasn't a conscious thing. It wasn't something I really understood until after the divorce, because I think that's when in any moments in our life, when things don't turn out as we hope, those are the opportunities to learn and grow. And so for me, there was so much self-reflection in that loss of the marriage, as much as it was a conscious choice for both of us at the time. And it was a very amicable divorce. It still hurts. And so being able to really look at, and I still think about like, God, you know, how I still have lessons that sort of come up now. And it's been 10 years since my divorce that I really learned so much about myself and how I showed up or didn't show up or how I didn't allow him to love me or, you know, whatever it was that again, none of it was conscious, but I think it's so important for us to do the reflections in life, you know, through the good and the bad. You know, it's so interesting that you just said, allow him to love me. I literally have a very close friend and she was dating this guy and it was kind of a similar situation. I literally sat her down and I told her, I was like, you have to allow him to love you. Like this guy loves you and you don't even want to see it. You won't see it. You won't acknowledge that this is a true fact, you know? And it was, it's crazy because she actually is now in a different relationship and she sees herself kind of doing this again. And she told me the other day, Lee, you were in my head the whole time. He said, I love you for the first time to me. And I didn't want to believe him. And then I heard you in my head say, you better let this guy (laughs) believe what he's saying. Let him love you. You know, and it sounds easier than it, than it is for, for those of us who grew up in, you know, whatever the the dynamic was growing up and mine was not easy childhood. And um, my parents, I, I think we show at parenting is not easy. And, and so, you know, as a parent myself, like I reflect on things where I'm like, oh man, I probably could have shown up better in that situation. I'm a very reflective person. So I do think of things that way, but I think for our parents, they showed up as best as they could and things that, you know, we interpret or misinterpret and those affect who we are as adults, obviously. And I think that piece of not allowing someone to love me or not allowing someone to show up for me um, really became prevalent as in, in actually business too, like not just in my personal relationships, but also in business. When you get hit over the head with that and you see patterns, it's, I mean, I have no choice, but that to really dive in and understand what's really going on. What's the thread here um, that's causing me to have outcomes I don't want or causing me to have relationships that aren't as deep as I want, or, you know, whatever the situation might be. Yeah. And so you're saying you kind of, you can look back and you see this kind of starting way back as a child, really having to be so independent at a very early age. Yeah, absolutely. And there was so many dynamics with my parents. I mean, I don't, you know, without going into the, some of the the details there, but there was definitely that feeling of a little, as a little girl, not necessarily feeling loved. And it wasn't that my parents didn't love me. I don't know that, that I felt that I was loved. It's life. Life is you know, it's, it's challenging and it's got its ups and downs. And if we, if we really allow ourselves to reflect, I think the power of who we can be and how we can show up in the world and, and how we can also help support others, I think is, is, is really what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. So you had an entrepreneurial father that sounds like you kind of saw him on the phone in the car and saying, Hmm, seems kind of cool and fun. 
So where did you go to college and what were some of your first jobs? I went to school. I, I bounced around a little bit and this is actually a little bit funny. So especially given how driven Iowa I am, and I'm going to say this for the first time and embarrass myself, but I, I, I actually ended up going to high school in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is, I went, I moved in with my dad and I went to school at SMU for a year and a half. And I'm literally going to make fun of myself. I think I went there because I wanted to find a Southern man to marry. And so I did not go there. Admittedly so. I don't think I went there for the education. I went there because I loved Southern men and I thought that's where I should go to school. And so probably all the wrong reasons. And especially now knowing who I am and how driven I am, I'm like, what happened in that like year moment? Um, You were just trying to line up the stars, you know, you were just trying to help yourself out. And along the way, I don't know if it has anything to do with like lack of ambition. I think you were just like, Hey, if I'm going to meet somebody and I'm interested in a Southern guy, I'll just try to be in that area. I'm pretty sure I had the same thought process. (laughs) I think we should always confess it because I just am a sucker for Southern accents. I mean, that's, that's the, I mean, I don't go after the Southern guy, but I had my own ambitions for where I went to college for the first semester. Semester and it didn't last long because you're right. Bad reasons to go to school. Yeah. So that didn't last long. And I stayed for a year and a half and I was like, this isn't really my scene, but glad I experienced it. Um, then I went on semester at sea, which was the boat trip around the world for a hundred days, which was absolutely life-changing. So it's 400 college students on a boat around the world. And you, I mean, and we, oh my God, I mean, I wish my kids were going to do this. I don't know if they will, but I mean, we went to Carnival in Brazil. We went on safari in Africa. We were in Japan riding the bullet trains. We were on the Great Wall of China and Beijing. I mean, the experience of going to 13 countries, most of which were third world. So even India, we went and worked at orphanages uh, or not worked at, but like went into orphanages and stuff in India. And, and we saw it from a different lens than, you know, if you go and stay at a nice hotel in a third world country, it's it's not a very authentic experience. And, you know, for us as college students, 400 of us, you know, getting dropped off literally (laughs) in a country and sort of like, go for it, go, go see the, you know, go see the world. That was probably the most transformative experience in my life, uh, at least certainly at the time. And I remember thinking when I have children, I'm going to have them experience this, you know, as early as possible because there was so much to learn about perspective and the bubble and that we live in here. Right. And, and, and how, and even more so now than even when I was growing up. And then from there, I actually transferred to the university of Colorado. So I went back to my roots, went to Boulder. And once I got to Boulder, I was all about getting out. And so as much as Boulder is such a rad school and it's so fun and beautiful and skiing and outdoors and parties and all the fun things, I was so then like the whole, my whole ambition clicked in and I ended up sort of teaching a business class. I was a TA for a business class there that was amazing. And we used to have to do presentations in front of 700 people and really challenged me and got me out of my comfort zone. I was scared to death, but I forced myself to keep putting myself out there in these situations like speaking that, you know, I kind of broke through, which became very very helpful in my career. And, um, and I always, I had, I worked, I did internships and I did it because I was just so determined to get a great job when I got out of college. And I was, I remember my dad saying, okay, the day you graduate, 
And I grew up very well. And so for me, when he told me that the day you graduate, you're on your own, I was terrified. <laughs> and so, right. so by great job, you mean great paying job out of and, college. Yeah. So like you're on your own, like no health benefits, no car, no, you know, nothing. It's, it's all you. And I was like, oh my God. And okay. And so I got very, very focused on, on that outcome. And it, at that time, and it's so different now when, when young people are going to college, because it's so much more entrepreneurial, there's so many different paths. But for me at that time, it was like the big companies would come into the college and it was Procter and Gamble or Ernst and Young, Eli Lilly, you know, and, or Nestle, which is who I ended up working for. And they'd come in and they do the campus on-campus recruiting. And that was sort of the only way we knew how to get a job. There was no internet. <laughs> so we weren't, you know, there was no online services or anything, you know, or LinkedIn's or anything. So I got a job with Nestle. I was like 2,400 candidates and I was the number one can recruit for the country. So they, they got the job and they chose seven of us and they said, okay, you get to choose first where you want to live in the country. And so I chose the Bay area and that's really how I ended up in California and have never left since. And that was my kick off the career. The part that's so hilarious uh, about that is that I really didn't know what my job was going to be. And I thought I was going to be planning parties. And um, what it ended up being was uh, I was in the food service division. And so I ended up selling country sausage gravy, corned beef hash, uh, cheese sauce, marinara sauce, like in these big cans. And I would drive around to schools and hospitals and you know, chain restaurants and even prisons and sell this food. And I remember being horrified and so humbled because <laughs> it was like, you come out of college and you think you're like just the best thing ever. And then I'm driving a big red van filled with really unhealthy food. And I was like, Oh my God, is this a reality check? So, um, but what I think, you know, I, what really was amazing, obviously you work for a company like that and you learn sales skills and you learn, you learn skills that you just can't get when you're winging it, right? They're very, very developed, right? They develop their employees. I learned a ton in the year I was there, but what also really stood out for me was the entrepreneurial side of me really started to come out then. And I, just as a quick side note, but there, we had these products, there were these, um, and I think this becomes relevant to where I ended up today in, in wellness, but we had these sauces and they were going to, they were going to retire them because they weren't selling enough of them. And so I thought that they were the best products that Nestle had at the time. And so I got really excited. I would, I would stay up all night and I would make these pasta salads and salad dressing recipes. And I turned these sauces into an, a, a whole cookbook. And I took the cookbook and then I went and sold the product and got the, this huge chain of, it was salad bar chain at the time to, to, to buy the products, like to, to put them in all of their chains. And I think that was really my first kind of like seeing the creativity and my obsession on healthy food. Cause I wanted to show like Nessie could have healthy food too. And my kind of it became like a pebble in the path that really ultimately led me to being here. But that was my first job out of college. Well, that and sounds really nice that you were even able to do that. I mean, it sounds like you kind of came up with these recipes and had to pitch internally, hey, I want to go and sell the to like salad bar chains. 
and they had to give the green light to do that. And I think sometimes with really big companies, there's so much red tape. It's hard to get any, you know, green light to do very much um, on your own or with your own ideas. So that's really great. And I think, you know, it's interesting because you see where Nestle is today, like they're very progressive. And I think that's probably was part of what I experienced. And, but it's so funny to think back to it. Cause I remember like, I think I was like on a word processor. Like I didn't have a computer. So I was like a word processor designing a cookbook, going to Kinko's in the middle of the night, having it laminated, like hilarious, having it bound, taking it. But yeah. And, um, and that was sort of one of my more proud moments. Somehow I became a prison expert in how to sell to prisons. And so they, the company Nestle, like gave me an award for that, which was funny. <laughs> I should have saved the award and, and kept it on my wall. Top and- sales to prisons. <laughs> like. <laughs> like, is that really an award? Um, and then from there, I actually went and worked for in software. Um, I worked for Oracle and because um, I was living in the Bay Area and that's what you did. Like you just, that was right. during the heyday. Tech company. Yeah. And you go for a tech company and it was all young people and it was fun and you know, they had big parties and did, you know, we had your free food and your workout center. And so it just became like your post-college campus. And that was an amazing experience. And I did that run for a long time until I had, I had my first child when I was 26. And that was, I, I stayed working in corporate for about four more years. And then it got really difficult being in software and my career really took off in software where I ended up managing large partners like PricewaterhouseCoopers globally and um, ended up traveling all over the world, which was really amazing. And I became a, sort of an expert in e-commerce and became a, an educator on e-commerce marketing and, you know, educating these big, large consultancies like a Pricewaterhouse. It was an incredible career, um, but it also, I, as I was really kind of honing in on my motherly skills and wanting to spend more time with my daughter and also have more children, I ended up leasing, leaving the high-tech career. And my husband then at the time, we both moved to San Diego and tried to slow me down. <laughs> tried to slow you down. So you moved from the Bay Area to San Diego and was this kind of like, I'm going to stay at home and put some years in full time with the kids or what did that look like? What does slowing the down look like? Yeah, that was hilarious, actually. I mean, it, I think it sounded great in theory. I am so entrepreneurial and I think this is just in my DNA. Um, we got to San Diego. Um, immediately, I got pregnant with my second child and it was, it was during the housing boom in San Diego. And I remember walking with my husband around the neighborhood that we had just moved into. It was very, very new development. And I was like, I want to start something. And I don't know what it's going to be. And we're walking around and I'm seeing all these new homes. And I thought, what do all these homes need? And there was two things that stood out for me. Um, one is they need landscaping because we live outside in San Diego. And they need window coverings because they need privacy. They may have no furniture inside because a lot of homes didn't. They're big, beautiful homes with beautiful cars and no furniture, but they have to have privacy and they have to have landscaping. So I thought, well, I'm not going to become a landscape architect, but I could probably figure out how to do window coverings. And I ended up turning that into a very successful business and won a whole bunch of awards in San Diego for most beautiful window coverings. And my goal at the time, um, and I ended up having another child like back to back, was how can I make the most amount of money with the least amount of time and do something that is creative? And so that became sort of my my first kind of company, if you will, post-corporate post America. 
And so that was kind of the interior designer type of job or business that you grew is the window coverings and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, it served its purpose. I mean, it wasn't my life calling. And I can't remember, I remember thinking to myself, I know I have a greater purpose than this, but this suits exactly what I need to be doing right now because I want to be available for my children. I was making great money and I had total freedom and flexibility. Um, so it sort of checked the boxes for where I was at uh, at that time. And so what changed and why would you want to stop doing that? <laughs> right. It sounds like the ultimate kind of end point, right? It's like, it's like, oh, well, why would you change things up? Yeah, it's working. Why would you change it? I, I remember driving home from a, a family trip in, in Telluride, actually. It was in the summer. I was driving home and I said to my husband, I'm so anxious. And I said to him, I have a bigger purpose and I need to go make a difference in the world. And I just remember, I remember where I was when I said it, I just had had this inner anxiety of like always kind of knowing I was supposed to just have a bigger impact in the world. And I was like, yeah, I, it's great that I'm giving people privacy and they love their homes and the window coverings are beautiful. And I'm really glad I can kind of touch people's homes that way, but I want to have a much, much bigger impact in the world. And so that was, I actually kind of got rid of the business, like right then and there was just done. And I went into sort of my soul searching. I actually signed up for a life coaching school and I decided to do, um, kind of, not that I wanted to be a life coach, but I knew I needed to do some interpersonal work. And through that, I thought I'm going to take this year off and I'm going to go to work on me. And along that way, you know, perhaps my greater calling in life will, will, will present itself. So what did that look like? What do you mean take a year off and do what? What what does soul searching look like? Well, I had three kids and my husband was working. And so it was more of a, like, I'm going to do this life coaching program and which is life coaching programs for anyone that's done them is very much like you work on you and, and it's communication skills as well. At the time, I knew that my divorce was imminent. So I was also getting myself ready emotionally, I think for that. So it was sort of my, my therapy, if you will. I think it was that time where sometimes you just have to stop the doing to allow for the clarity. And I'm not good at that. I'm not, I am great at as a visionary, but I, I, the best moments I think are often when we stop forcing and we're stop doing, 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 because we're so anxious to create. I actually forced myself not to work for a year so that I could really get clarity, not only on my own kind of personal growth, but also what my greater calling in life might be. And I think the only way I would have had the clarity to now do what I've been doing now for the last 15 years in wellness was if I had taken that year off and, and stopped the busyness because in the silence is really when I think you get the, the biggest clarity in life. So what kind of silence did you create? And do you think one year is like, a, I mean, what if it was six months? Do you think it still would have happened in six months? Or do you think, or what if it was more than a year? Like, what if you got to 11 months in and you're like, shit, I still don't, I still don't know my vision. Like, I still don't know my impact. I love the question. I know a lot of pressure, right? Yeah. So I, I think it was more of a, it was, it was sort of like if you started an exercise program and you're like, okay, I'm committed for a month or whatever. I was like, I'm committing for a year, which was like, 
horribly scary for me to not be creating or not yeah. working. Sounds like a really long time. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God. I'm going to crawl out of my skin. What is this going to look like? But I was like, no, no, no. This is like, I'm going to be more available for my kids. I'm going to, I'm going to do the deep work and I'm going to invite in like whatever, like what, like what really lights me up? Where do I see that I would be excited to, to really pour, you know, my energy into. I, and I think to your point, I don't know that you, there's, you can't like force like an, on, you know, the 11th month, 29th day, all of a sudden, you know, I saw the, I saw the ray of light that told me what to do, but I, I do think it was a necessary step in the process to really allow me to get in touch with me and, and really focus in on what I, what I'm good at, what I learned at. And it was so funny when I was in life coaching school is the life coaching teacher said to me, Lisa, you have a bigger calling. Like, this is just a, like a pebble in your path. Like there's something bigger brewing for you. We know this. And I knew that I just felt that in, in my soul. So I can't tell you that, you know, within a year I had the clarity, but sure, I would say it led me down this path that ultimately gave me the clarity. So while I was in, in a life coaching school, whatever that means, I went to this entrepreneurial class, not class. It was like a weekend with Marie Forleo in New York. And she was very up and coming at the time. Gabrielle Bernstein was there. She was very up and coming. I don't even know if she had come out with her first book yet. It was a lot of really just up and coming thought leaders in this kind of younger generation. While I was there is actually when I had kind of my moment of truth, because it was, and what happened in this, when I say moment of truth, this was sort of from a wellness perspective. This woman named Chris Carr was speaking on stage and she was talking about how she healed herself and healed herself of cancer through food as medicine. And she's a very, very captivating woman. And anyone who's ever heard her, she's very witty. Um, at the time, she was sort of the one who created the juice cleansing, not, not juice cleansing, but juice cleansing phase probably. But she really taught about how powerful food is and that you have a responsibility to take control of your health. And it starts with what you eat, drink, and think. And for whatever reason, her message based on where I was at emotionally and mentally, I, it really resonated. And I remember looking around the room, feeling that's like this energy, this is high, high, high vibrational energy in the room of people just captivated by her. And I said to my friend, my God, that woman is beaming. And I ended up starting my first wellness company and called it beaming. <laughs> because of that. Thought. Because of that, I thought we all want what she has. We want that dynamic, powerful energy that is captivating that what we give out is what we get back in return. And so all I said is I just, I didn't know what it meant when I said that, but I was like, I want to understand this food is medicine thing. And so that was actually sort of dove me into my own kind of research. I went to school at the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. I read every book that I could get my hand, hands on. And I really started to understand food as medicine. And I had grown up in a really healthy family. I didn't mention that earlier. So for me, I always really respected health, my body. I exercised every day. I ate healthy and grew up in a family with no junk food, but I didn't really understand what it meant to, to really take control of your health through food and preventative medicine through food. And so through what I learned, it really became a huge influence in, in my then sort of work now, which is around food as medicine. And 
And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon 38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. And so tell us about the company Beaming Wellness. So Beaming, yeah, Beaming was a, it doesn't exist anymore. It was um, a very, very successful group of superfood cafes. I launched it over 10 years ago in San Diego. And it was during the juice fasting days. I didn't believe in juice cleansing. So I was like very much, much, much more about nourishment culinary inspired. I love really good food. So for me, like healthy has to taste amazing. So I created this, this very up-leveled smoothie bar, if you will, using the most interesting superfoods that no one had ever heard of at the time, whether it was mushrooms or maca or spirulina, we were using chia, quinoa, all these things. Of course, now we know more about them, but at the time people did not know about those. I was creating, you know, smoothies with freshly made sprouted almond milk and using avocados and smoothies and and just ingredients people had never heard of. But, and we had these five-day cleanses that were very food-based so that you weren't starving yourself and you were changing habits and behavior. We had the most delicious salads and soups and all the things we did were so good that it became the most successful concept in the country the first year that we launched. And so it got a lot of attention and I ended up expanding it to 10 locations in Southern California, mostly which were ended up being in LA. I was living at San Diego at the time, actually still do. And it was really my first foray into that level of entrepreneurship where I was, I raised money, started a brand from scratch. Uh, my kids were part of it. They were little. I was going through divorce at the time. So many things were happening, but I, that message that I got from that event that I went to was so hit me so hard in the research I was doing that I was like, I have to bring this to the world. Like, does it, like nothing can stop me. And so I launched that brand and grew it again to 10 locations over the course of, I think, six years, and then ended up exiting about four years ago. So exiting meaning you left or company got acquired or what happened? Yeah, I got to learn some of the really hard lessons as an entrepreneur. I left because of a couple of things. One is I, I had the wrong partners. Um, so I had raised money from people. And at the time I just, I was raising money. I'd never done that before. So I don't have a background in finance and never run a restaurant before and had never built an investor deck before. So when people wanted to give me money because they loved what we were doing, I was just excited to get the money. I didn't really think about like, what would the value be potentially that they would bring? Would they be the right partners? And I think the biggest mistake I made is I, I built a, I, a lot of people that 
that wrote bigger checks asked for a seat on the board. And I did not understand what it meant to have a board. So I thought, well, that's amazing. And this person's going to give me a million dollars that they want a seat on the board. Sounds like a fair exchange. <laughs> and, and very naive. I will absolutely own that. And um, I ended up having a board with people who knew nothing about the industry were really not aligned with my personal values or the values of the company. And I was not a strong enough leader at the time to really lead with confidence. And I lost control and I kicked and screamed and, and tried to sort of get the, the company back into the right hands and really get the right partners. But at that point it was too late. And um, I just saw the integrity of the brand go down the tubes and things that just were not in alignment with me personally. And of course, I'm certain, you know, I made other mistakes along the way that, you know, every entrepreneur makes, but that was my biggest mistake. And that was just one that I didn't know who to ask for help. I didn't have anyone to help guide me. Um, I didn't have a, a partner who was an operations expert. And so you know, when you're running cafes, it's very operationally complex. And I didn't have someone really strong in finance. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make where you might be really creative, a great visionary, know how to create a great brand, but your vision is only as good as, as, as making sure you have the right support. And in this case, specifically operations and finance. And that was my person, that's my personal weak spot. And by not having that, it really ended up costing me the brand. And, you know, I exited about four years ago. It's now owned by a company called Earthbar. And I lost everything financially. And it was a very hard, hard experience. I mean, it brought me to my knees. It was way worse than going through divorce because um, I had risked everything. I had put out my heart and soul into this brand. And I had built a brand that people loved and it was changing so many people's lives. And I had to go deep after that and go, what happened? How did I get here? And how do I never end up here again? Yeah. What did you do to get through all of that, <laughs> you know, to get to the other side? Lots of tears, lots of learning and a totally new way, another soul searching event. Yeah, a lot of tears. And I think this is a relevant point to this conversation because where we started one of the things that I realized that I did subliminally, so all of a sudden I realized that my board was my parents, but I realized like, oh my gosh, I, ch I chose, or I have people on my board who, who nothing's ever good enough. Right. And it didn't matter that we were the most successful brand. It didn't matter that we, everyone, all the celebrities were coming and people were obsessed with the brand and we had incredible sales and it, it was never enough. And that was the dynamic I felt with my parents growing up. And all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, oh my God, I recreated like my dynamic as a young girl, as a grown woman on my board. And that was a reality check that was really hit me hard. And I thought, okay, what's behind this? And there's some, you know, cause you have to take accountability when you go through stuff like that, like our first, we always want to blame everyone else, but I made the choice to have these people on the board. I made these decisions like that's on me. You know, I didn't have the right partners helping me. And yeah, I can, I can say I didn't have it, but I didn't go find it. I didn't have the skills to go find it or, or the confidence. So that's it. You still have to be accountable to that. And I think once I had the accountability, I could really do the deep work. 
and, and then go deeper. And, and I ended up going and I did a lot of different workshops and I went to the Hoffman clinic in the Bay area for a week, which is a pretty intensive program. A lot of it for me was I had to slowly climb out. And I think, I think the part that is, is really so important. That was one of my big takeaways in going through something like that was not only the accountability, but you don't get to just snap your fingers and decide that you're all done with your work. And that was a big reality check for me because as someone who's always been a creator and a doer and pretty much anything that I say that I'm going to do, I can go, I go do. And I could not find the strength in me to create. And I had lost all confidence in myself. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just a one hit wonder. Like maybe, yeah, I created this. That's it. Like maybe I don't have it in me. And all of those voices in your head and all the self-doubt and I couldn't get a job and like no one would hire me. And I, that doesn't help either. And I was like, well, how they're not hiring me. I just created this great brand. And oh my God, talk about it. Like a just ego crasher. And which was the best thing for me. I mean, it was so much about, you know, me going back into my own personal why of why I wanted to create what wellness means for me with the difference and impact I want to make in the world and really removing the ego from it. But it took me a long time to recover. I did lose everything financially. Uh, it was very scary and slowly started to have the vision for my next, my next venture. And as that came together, it wasn't like all of a sudden I woke up one day and had money and the whole vision was clear, but I started to be able to get up and have a focus that sort of one foot led in front of the next, in front of the next until, until I had momentum. Yeah. And how long did that take? I mean, cause this is like a, that's a steep cliff that it sounds like you fell down from in a way, right? I mean, this is such a painful, hurtful experience. I think a lot of people, it's so much easier to just say, you know, that entrepreneurship is so freaking hard. I got burned and maybe even just waddle for years in this kind of, I don't know what to do next. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Maybe it'll just come to me one day, but you know, each time you've kind of got knocked down, you've put in the work. And so I'm trying to dig into what work is that? What does that look like? Cause I think a lot of people listening might be in that rut right now where they're really feeling like, I know that I'm meant to start a business or I know I'm meant to start another business. I failed at my last one. I want to be successful at a new one. And I'm having a hard time getting over the loss or the feeling of failure or you know, all these emotions that people feel through the entrepreneurship journey. And there, there's probably a lot of people feeling stuck. So what advice do you kind of have around getting unstuck, especially on this kind of second time, trying to, you know, slowly get your mojo back in a way? Absolutely. It was getting my mojo back. I don't think, I mean, I, I can look back on it now and, and see that the, the quote, the you know, be dramatic. The loss of beaming was the best gift in my life. And I know we hear, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you guys have heard the story, like Sarah Blakely, you know, the question that they asked at the dinner table every night that her father asked was, how did you fail today? And that was more interesting. And she grew up in that dynamic where it was like, it's not about actually all the wins. It's not about all the medals and the awards. It's really like, what did you learn today? What didn't go your way? And I think by, by losing a brand that I love so much, it became my greatest teacher. 
And it's also helped me become, I think, the, the leader that I am today. It helped me make sure that how I build this company, I didn't, I have not made the mistakes I made before. I'm sure I'll make some new ones, but I have the best partners on the planet. I have the most incredible investors. My actual business partner who built this with me is an operational and financial genius. (laughs) So, you know, I, I mean, I have literally the best investors in the world. And so I, got to take those lessons. And I mean, entrepreneurship is hard. We're going to make so many mistakes and I know I'm going to make some going forward, but I also now know now, like I ask for help. I involve our investors. I don't have a big board. Like I have a, um, you know, my business partner and one other person is on the board and it's a very, very friendly dynamic. It's, it's, I created what I knew I needed for me to thrive. And the only way I could have done that was to have failed before quote fail. Right. But how did you kind of overcome when you're in the dip? How do you get out? You know, that that's what I'm trying to dig into. You got to, you, you have to feel what you're feeling, go through the pain, go through all of the, 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 just the, the negative self-talk that happens. I'm sorry. Like it just is, I don't want to pretend like that didn't happen. But then also find that strength in you to know you've created before. And again, like once you you own sort of what the mistakes were, they're no longer about you. They're about mistakes. Like, oh, I had the wrong board. I didn't have an operations partner. Like you, it, you, it becomes factual and you start making an emotional attachment to it. And now it just becomes, okay, like how do I, like, let's take all of that and turn it into sort of the magic for how, who you become going forward. If you're willing to look at it that way, if you're willing to do the work. And I think the hardest part that people have in, you know, going through a failure or really, I mean, it could be a failed marriage is accountability because if you can't be accountable to your role and it's everybody else's fault. And I see this all the time. If you blame everyone else, there's nothing for you to learn. There's, there's nowhere to go. So I think by doing that and me seeing my role, my accountability to that, um, of course, doing some of the work that would, and, and part of it's just, it, there's a self-healing. And I, I think you have to be willing, you can't just like sweep it under the rug because it'll come back and rear its ugly head if you don't deal with it as with anything, you know, in life that way. It sounds like you didn't put a timeline on yourself this time. Like last time you're like, in one year, I'm going to figure out what I want to do next. This time, it sounds like you didn't expect maybe two years to fly by. No, but I didn't think it would take that long either. Like, I remember just thinking like I was in a dunking machine and I was like, every time I'd come above water for like a second, I'd just get hit in the face and go underwater again. And I was like, whoa, this is not anything I've ever understood. I'm a creator. I'm a doer. Whatever I say happens. I kind of make magic happen and it was not happening. So I really had to learn that you, again, you don't just get to stamp your fingers and decide when you're done with, you're done with your work, but, and, and some things you can heal from very quickly. Other things take longer to heal, but I think if you don't heal, it just, you can't really grow um, and allow yourself that time. So I did, I mean, I was, I, I was, I didn't have any money. It was a very, very, very tough time. I woke up in the mornings with horrible anxiety at, you know, three in the morning going, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I'm not going to paint a pretty picture, but what I hope to to convey is that that was all a necessary step in the process. Hopefully people don't have to make it that dramatic and that um, 
intense. But I do think that failure is such the opportunity. I mean, people were more willing to invest in me because I had failed. <laughs> because Which is very contrary to belief. <laughs> and it was like, it was my competitive advantage. They're like, oh, you're not a naive entrepreneur who just thinks everything goes your way. Like you have learned your lessons. You know that having an operational partner with a complex business is critical, that you have your finances dialed, that, you know, for the financials of the company are dialed. You have, you know, you have, I went out and attracted all these great investors because I had a different vision for what those investors would look like. So I was able to communicate like why, you know, they had seen that I had built an amazing brand before. They knew I could do that. And then I addressed the mistakes that I had made. And so that made me way more investable. Well, speaking of investors, you have such incredible investors. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow, Amy Schumer, Jessica Seinfeld. I mean, you have, you've raised over $5.5 million. What are some of the challenges that you did face with fundraising? I know it was a lot different this, this go round, but what were some of the challenges maybe that you've learned about fundraising for this type of product? I mean, what I will say, fundraising is hard no matter what. I was, my business partner and I had just put the business, the, the, the deck together, the investor deck. It was, we hadn't launched yet. We hadn't created product yet. Although I had been in the kitchen for a while working on product because um, I, I do all of our own formulations with my daughter actually. And, um, but the vision had finally come to life in our deck. We're so excited to tell the world. And the next day the world shut down with, with COVID and there was no way we could send a deck to anyone for the next probably four months while people were scrambling to figure out what was happening in the world and how do you get toilet paper and groceries and right. time to people were out. more concerned about finding toilet paper than they were yeah. looking at pitch decks. They were definitely not looking at pitch decks. So that was like, oh shit, like now what? I emptied my 401k and I was like, okay, I've got to give us a lifeline, uh, my last lifeline actually, and buy us some time. So that was a screeching halt moment. But what then happened is that my daughter and I finished creating all the products and our five-day reset. And I realized if I have a product that I can then put in people's hands and they can taste it and they can experience five days of Chroma and all of our products, I really get to beta test this and see if people are going to love it as much as they think they will. And we tested it. We had you know glucose monitors. We did all sorts of testing. And it was so profound, the results that, that I think it was like five people went through it first and they all lost like eight pounds and they felt amazing. They became obsessed with the products and they wanted them all the time. And I was like, okay, we are onto something. Let's keep doing this. And so we, I just sort of kept beta testing it until I could start sending out a deck. And, um, but what was really hard about that is, and one of the things I'm really very proud of with our current cap table of investors, many of which you mentioned and that were 90% funded by women, is I didn't know any of them before I started. So it's not like I had a Rolodex where I could just reach out to Gwyneth Paltrow or Amy Schumer or Jessica Seinfeld or any one of them and say, hey, like I have a new gig, you want to want to invest. Like I didn't know any of them. And even our my first check happened on November 3rd, 2020. And I'll remember the day vividly because I had no money to pay rent or buy food for my kids. And I knew I wouldn't be homeless. 
But so I didn't have that fear. My business partner would have helped me, but he wasn't in a financial position to like, you know, take care of me, but he would have made sure I wasn't homeless. So, um, but at, at the same time, I remember the stress of going, this is it. Like, you know, and, and as an entrepreneur, when you're ready to like bring your product to the world and tell the world, like you're ready. And, you know, I don't know how many no's I had. I mean, every venture group I talked to said no up until that first check on November 3rd, it was from the former CEO of Twitter, Dick Costello. I did not know Dick before this. He had gone through my beta program through the five-day reset. He was a friend of a friend and he became obsessed with the product and he became that first check. And then he, and then he made an introduction to John Callahan, who was the first check in Peloton. And then he invested. And then John introduced me to Brian Meehan from Blue Bottle Coffee. And then he invested. And then they introduced me to Jenny Lefcourt from another group. And then she introduced me to a ton of other women. And it sort of just went from there. But it was very much a onesie twosie game after having at least 50 venture groups say, love the idea, but your pre-revenue, your pre-proof of concept we've been burned, come back after you've launched, you know, we need to see revenue first, which is a very, I mean, that's pretty much what happens out there, which is why I focused on angels because venture was, was venture was going to be too hard. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of pre-seed pre-revenue venture funds. So angels are always the best kind of route to go. And so how much were you able to raise from angels to get things going and to pay your rent? Yeah. So the first check came in um, and then prior to, so before we launched July 19th of last year, 2021, I had raised five and a half. And then um, we've raised more money since, um, continued to have raised through angels and I, I want to mention this because I think this was, you know, sort of and when, when you get so many no's, and those are pretty hard. I mean, I think, you know, you, you start to feel like, like, is my, is my baby ugly? <laughs> like, why is no one, they're getting it, but they're not willing to invest in it. And so I had to have a moment of truth to say, I've got to approach this differently. And so what I did is I thought, okay, what if I could, and this was just a big dream. What if I could bring together some of the most influential people in the country, whether they were big celebrities or they were the mom in the community who could tell everyone, what if I brought together this really incredible group of investors who would be passionate about what we're doing and help us tell the world? So it'd be this mini kind of think tank or incubator. And I had not ever seen it done before. So I was like, but this could be a really interesting marketing strategy. And so I sort of had that vision. And then I was on the phone with one of my friends who's a great investor advisor, uh, Lauren Rinke. And I, she and I sort of created this, this vision board of like, well, who would we want? <laughs> we're like, okay, Gwyneth Paltrow. And, you know, we just started listing out, listing out people. And I think by having such a clear vision of this idea that I made up, that allowed me to really actually make it a reality. And it has become one of our most powerful success tools to date is because every one of our investors has been incredibly supportive and has helped us tell the world so much so that we actually haven't done any paid media or, you know, anything except for really word of mouth marketing. That's amazing. And so are the, so these people, the, they have to invest 
And then they're also just by nature as part of you choosing them as an investor, they're going to also, you know, help promote, I guess, the product. Is that kind of the deal or they get like advisory shares on top of it? Like, I wonder how you structure stuff like that. No, I mean, in this particular case, people loved the product so much. So every one of the the people who invested did so having tried the beta. The product spoke for itself. They had amazing experiences. They were blown away. They loved it. And so they ended up investing as a result of that. I think one of the fun stories to share along the way is, so the first check came November 3rd. And then by February, I had raised half the money, which at the time was two and a half million we were trying to raise. And so I had raised 1.2, I think. And I woke up on a Sunday morning and I was crying actually, because I was tired and I was tired of raising money. I was tired of no's, even though I was getting some yeses, there was still a lot of no's. I was frustrated because I wanted to bring the product to market and the clock was ticking. So I felt the pressure of that. And I just was like, how am I going to do this? Like, I know it's out there. I got to keep having conversations, but you know, I was having an entrepreneurial moment of just exhaustion. And I kid you not, I got a text from one of our new investors, Melody McClowski. She's the CEO of Style Seat. And she texts me and she says, check your email. And I check my email and it's an, it's an email from Gwyneth Paltrow basically saying, I, you know, Lisa, you know what a big fan I am of yours. No, I did not know that actually. <laughs> uh, like you are? <laughs> I did not. Uh, thank you. Um, and I heard you have a new wellness company. She was a big fan of Beaming. So I knew she liked Beaming, but I, I didn't know it was as personal as she had mentioned. And, you know, I would love to meet and learn more. So that was a moment where you scream and it was very much, very surreal. I sort of always felt like at some point, maybe Gwyneth would be involved. I just didn't know it would happen that, you know, that early on. And that obviously, you know, influenced a lot of the trajectory going forward, um, having her, you know, support and acknowledgement of what we were doing. And when we launched, we, we sent everyone a five-day reset. When we launched all of the investors, you know, many of them have large following. So they posted or the people in the community told their friends and they've really become our, our go-to-market, you know, initially, at least to this, to this point before we turn on some of our more, you know, more significant growth channels. And, and they've also been, you know, they're, they're helpful for recruiting, you know, find, if I'm hiring, they're helpful for different, you know, different investors play a different role for different reasons. I mean, if we're talking about our fundraising strategy, if we're talking about our growth strategy and how fast we're going to grow or dealing with supply chain issues or whatever it might be, we sort of have this think tank of some of the most you know, successful people in the world that are, you know, we have access to that we're able to tap into. So That's amazing. How many people are in this think tank that you have? I think there's a hundred. So, so it, it, there's quite a group. Um, we wanted it to be very inclusive. And I also wanted to make it predominantly invest, you know, predominantly women and women do ch- tend to write smaller checks. And so that was okay with me because I knew that the women would also be the ones that would help tell the world. That's really cool. And I think, you know, that's a really smart idea. Obviously you are trying to be resourceful, but in a really um, smart way, you know, to get to um, choose the right investors based on how they can also help you launch the product. And speaking of the product, I have the one day lifestyle reset kind of sitting here. I um, started, I'm doing it today. So I've already had 
the shine, the number one thing. So they're all numbered, which is helpful because I would be lost. I would not know what goes when and when to have it. But yeah, I'm actually sipping on some of the latte right now. And it's really good. I'm actually like not a fan of turmeric. And whenever I see it, I'm like, oh, God, another turmeric latte. Like, I just can't do it. But this one is really, really good. And I think it's maybe the ginger gives it a nice little zing at the end. That's not too tough. But yeah, really delicious. And then I had the breakfast super porridge, just kind of like a modern oatmeal, like a superfood oatmeal, which was really good. And then the hydrate, the cranberry hydrate, because I'm always dehydrated. So this has been really helpful. I already had that. And so I'm excited for my lunch, which is I've got the blueberry immunity smoothie and the veggie broth with miso. Let me know if I'm doing any of this wrong. I've never done like I've done the juice cleanses from back in the day when that was like a popular thing, Um, but I haven't done like this type of reset. So I'm excited to see how I feel at the end of the day. Oh, I love it. And I love, I mean, and not so much like everything you described, it's a lifestyle program. And, you know, there's the one day, which is great for people who maybe just want to trial Chroma because you get to try 10 things in the regular one day or 11 things in the VIP one day. And the VIP just has the cookie butter, the frother and the mug. So cookie butter, OMG cookie butter is sort of like the most divine thing ever. And people freak out over it. So, um, but so that's a nice way to do it, or it's great for travel or gifting. And then the five day is sort of the signature program, which is really obviously a five day commitment, but the whole concept is around nourishment. And so as you were describing your food, it's like we, in fact, people tell us all the time, I can't finish all the food. And that's actually so much of the point is because we want like, this is about intuitive eating, right? And, and what it do, am I really hungry? Like you might, you probably won't even have time or need a need for the smoothie today. So you're going to have that tomorrow. If you want, um, you may not finish the afternoon latte. Um, there's a matcha latte in there too, with collagen and ginger and turmeric. And that's how I start my day every day. And we give people some caffeine. If you need the caffeine, some people need that. So we make it very much, it has to meet like everyone's body is different. So the way I've always really looked at it was, let me just, let me just nourish you and give you so much beautiful food. That's super easy and convenient, super simple. If all you have is hot water, you've got a great broth or you have a beautiful latte or you've got your porridge. Or if you, you know, want to snazz it up a little bit and add some protein and vegetables to your, for your broth for lunch and dinner, go for it. Some people exercise a lot. So it's very much designed for people to really listen to their bodies and become more in touch. How do I feel? Do I need to eat the food? And you'll immediately not only feel the difference, you'll see the difference. Cause within two days, like inflammation goes away. It's crazy how fast our bodies will respond when we're like properly nourishing them. And I've never been one to believe in starvation programs. I, that's why I didn't like the juice fast. They were filled with sugar. And it, even though it was fruit, it was still sugar. Um, some days were like 220 grams of sugar a day. And the max that we should have is 50 on the high, high end, 25 is more average. But so can you imagine on a juice cleanse it was 220 grams of sugar a day. And most of them crazy. And people didn't know that they thought they were doing something healthy. And there's some other programs out there right now that are popular and you're getting six or 700 calories a day. I think it's incredibly irresponsible. That's not a healthy way to lose weight. And I don't care if it's a fasting. I think there's healthier ways. If it's weight loss, it nourish yourself. And one of the things that when we were doing the beta, 
a lot of women actually were like, well, how many calories are in the program? And I said, well, it's about 1100 before you add any almond milk or before you add berries to your porridge or protein and vegetables to your soups, if you decide to. So probably like 15 to 1800 calories all in, you know, unless you add more and more stuff. And the reaction was interesting because a lot of the women said, oh, that's too many calories. I'm going to gain weight. <laughs> and, and you know how we do that. You don't really gain weight off of veggies. Like this is a thing, right? I always joke with my friend. I'm like, you're never going to get fat off of eating too much broccoli. Like it's just not. Happen, that's so right? true. And, and yet at the same time, I think, you know, I mean, portion control is part of it, but it's also making sure you have the right macronutrient profile, fats and protein and fiber and, and like low sugar and the right foods at the right time. And that's why we do the porridge in the morning. You know, that calories are not created equal, right? Like, yeah, I think that's the toughest lesson to learn about food. It's not a one for one, really. No, not. And, and everyone's body is different, but this is also teaching you. But what came so interesting and I got so excited about, uh, there's a lot of things I get excited about, but one of which was that the women who were afraid of the calories, I said, please, would you want to do it and just trust the process? And so they very timidly did it. And every one of them lost five pounds. And it was this high, like, oh my God, I've been trying to lose five pounds for three years, four years, five years. And I actually lost weight eating. Like it was so counterintuitive. And that's so much of what we're doing. And and then the other piece of it is, and you'll learn this when you do the program for the one day is, you know, we have 19 different products. And so over the course of five days, the menu changes, you have different smoothies, you have different lattes et cetera. But you find the things that you love and then you might love the porridge. You might love the broths. You might love the cookie butter, the morning beauty matcha, whatever it may be, the golden milk turmeric that you're having. And you can, you can continue to incorporate those into your daily life. And so it really is a lifestyle program where I'm sure many of you have done, you know, cleanses or resets or whatever we want to call them. And you do it, you lose some weight. Great probably lost some inflammation, you feel better, but then what? And what we really do is address the then what we're, we're actually more interested in what happens afterwards, because I think that's where real transformation happens. And that's where, you know, you now, I mean, I have Chroma five to eight times a day. That's just, that's how I live. It's how I thrive. I'm in LA right now. So I'm go out to a nice dinner tonight. And last night I went to a nice dinner, but when I'm in my kind of my zone, I'm mostly on Chroma and it's when I feel my best. That's awesome. And I, I mean, I really love the ingredients here. It is super healthy stuff. I'm excited to see how I feel at the end of the day. I'm already feeling pretty good. So I'm feeling good about it. I'm excited, but beautiful branding, of course. Um, you know, I love the ombre kind of colors going from light to darker throughout the day on the packages, you know, just really beautiful, healthy product. And uh, you've done such an incredible job. I'm excited to see your continued success. Before we kind of wrap up, because I know we're running out of time here, just two more questions. What's some kind of final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or business leaders tuning in? And what is next for Chroma? Uh, For aspiring entrepreneurs, I would say, one is entrepreneurship's not for everyone. And so I think for people who are uh, entertaining it, you know, you do have to be willing. I don't I hate to say this sounds very dramatic, but you have to be willing to risk it all. And you have to be willing. You have to have the confidence in yourself that, that 
you're the person to bring your idea to life and to have a conviction, you know, your, your, why, you know, the purpose, why this product or service has to exist in the market has to be so strong that nothing's going to stop you. Otherwise don't do it. And I think that's a big piece of, you can feel the difference when an entrepreneur is just so passionate and so understands their market. You know, they're not in a silo thinking that they're the only ones, right? Like, it's like, there's a big world out here. Where do you fit in it and how do you differentiate? And I think that's really critical for an entrepreneur to not have blinders on. That's, that's one. And then what's next for Chroma is, I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, we launched with 19 products. I don't recommend, uh, by the way, that entrepreneurs launch with that many SKUs. Um, that <laughs> was very that's hard. a lot. Very hard. Most people do one or two or three for a reason. Um, we did it because of the five day and wanted to make sure we made all those, most of those products available for people after. So, you know, we're really honed in on customer service and continuing to build our team and, you know, all the things to build the foundation so we can grow and not rush that. I, we will come out with new products. We've got a really cool innovation pipeline. That's not really where I focus. I really focus on continuing to do what we do really, really, really well and continuing to storytell better and help people understand what it is we do and how to incorporate in your life. And there's just so much we're dealing with people's health. So how do we really help just even the people that, you know, we have about 10,000 customers so far, like that's a lot in a in nine month period. And how do we take care of them while we're continuing to just grow organically? So there's a, there'll be a lot of things that are happening down the pipeline, you know, partnerships and new products and other things that we'll expand on. But right now it's really about focus. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for sharing your inspiring story on the show with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Lee, thank you so much. I loved the conversation. You're such a great question asker. And it was so fun to share things I've never shared before. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.